0: This is Radiance tape number, J.D. 17, a message by Jim Durkin entitled, Restoration of the Offices. Turn with me to the seventh chapter of the book of Matthew. I'd like you to understand a little bit of what the Lord is getting ready to do in our day, and do not, for a moment, lightly accept or lightly think about what I'm laying out to you here, because it's of some importance. To this church and to the church as a whole, but I'm speaking to you tonight. My message may not get beyond this particular church as far as these words are concerned, but God is bringing about a restoration of his church. Now, I know that in some ways that's been said before, but most people believe when they say that that what God is bringing about is just a bigger and better revival than let's say what we had in 1906 or what we had in 1946 or when the Jesus movement started two, three, four years ago, something bigger and better than that. But that's not what God is getting ready to bring to His church, more revivals. But there is coming a restoration of His church, and that's what we're looking for, a restoration of that church. Now, turn with me here, please, then, to the seventh chapter of the book of Matthew, and the 24th verse. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And without making too much of an effort to tie things up here, I would like to say, from my point of view, that I believe that rock is Christ and his word. And he makes this pretty clear here. When he says, Whosoever heareth these sayings of mine, meaning the Lord, pointing to himself, and doeth them. So it's himself and his word. Because a man's word, if he's a true speaker, is himself. There is no difference between the man's word and himself. Now, in this world, we can hear a man's word, and we don't know if we've heard the man at all. He says, Oh, I believe this, and we don't know if he believes that at all. Or, Oh, I did this, and we don't know if he did that. Or, I'm going here, and we don't know if he's going there. Because this world is so shot full of falsehood and lies that we cannot tell by a man's word. But the Lord's word and himself were one and the same, just like the Bible correctly expresses the mind of God. And when you've read the Bible and understand it right, that's God. You aren't going to know any more of God if you sat right down with him and talked to him and asked him a question that this Bible answer. And I say it to you today, if this Bible doesn't answer a question, then you wouldn't get that answer if you went to God. Because the Bible says he's given us everything that pertains unto life and godliness, and it's in this book. God's Spirit, working through this book, reveals to us everything we need to know that pertains to life and godliness. Now, I'd like to point out something that he says, if a man hears these sayings of mine and does that, then he's like a wise man who built his house upon a rock. And Christ is referred to many times in Scripture as the rock. Rock hewn out without hands out of the mountain, And who shall fall upon that rock? He will be broken. Well, thank God for that. That the majority of us have fallen on that rock and we were broken. Because the way we were was a mess. And once we were completely broken, then Christ began to put us back together after his own image. But the Bible says, on whomsoever that rock shall fall. speaking thinking about judgment will grind him to powder. And then it goes on to tell us in the book of Daniel, that rock hewn out of the mountain without hands fell on all the kingdoms of the earth, fell on that image, hit it in its feet, representing the kingdoms of this earth. And just the whole thing crumbled, blown away. We found no more place for it. And then the Bible said that rock grew to be a great mountain and filled all the earth, speaking about the coming kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now what is God getting ready to do now? Well, he's raising up a group of people. There are many of them right here now. There are other other places that are being raised up in the same way that are looking at the Bible afresh. They're looking at the Bible in a new way. They're stopping this business of explaining away the Scriptures. And they're simply saying, if this is what Jesus tells me to do, then this is what I'm going to do. And they're beginning to practice the Word. Now, they don't always understand what they're doing. And much of the time, I think, as we go on in our understanding, we find out that the way we were practicing it was wrong, and the Spirit will correct us a little bit here and a little bit there. And so we get more right on all the time. But the whole emphasis has changed. Now, if we're not careful, there are some people in the Jesus movement, movement all over the world, that are going to fall back into the old churchy way of doing things. I know the word says that, but the Lord understands. I know the word says that, but God will forgive me anyhow. I know the word says that, but the Lord knows our frame, that we're all dust. And we begin to make those same deadly excuses that have destroyed the church down through the ages. Now the Bible talks about such people falling by the way. And they surely will. Check yourself. Look into your own heart. Ask yourself, is your heart fully set within you to do God's will? Fully set within you to obey the word? Fully set within you to take up your cross and follow him? I want to bring out something that Jesus said. He said to his disciples, take up your cross and follow me. And then he said, if a man does not take up his cross, that's a voluntary thing. Jesus doesn't stick it on your back and nail it there. He doesn't tie it on with rope. It's a voluntary thing. You have the power to take it up. You have the power to refuse to take it up. He says if a man does not take up his cross and follow me, he is unworthy of me. Unworthy of me. Now, in a sense of the word, we're all unworthy. But the type of unworthiness Jesus is talking about here is simply that we will not make it. We can't follow him without the cross we can't follow him without the things that he tells us to go through we can't follow him except by becoming that type of resolutely violent person who literally storms the kingdom of heaven that we're wanting a place in that kingdom now jesus in the restoration of this church there's come a peculiar thing that has happened to the church the church started out with a certain order a certain discipline a certain plan now, I don't need to read this chapter, I'm sure. Most of you know what happens, the balance of it here, that the man who built his house upon the rock, when the winds came and the floods beat against that house, it stood because it was founded upon a rock. Then the Lord goes on to tell what happens to the person who heard the sayings of Jesus and did not do this. What happened to the house? It fell in what way did it fall? Yes, great was the fall of it. Some of the versions say it's collapsed was final. In other words, it was finished. There was no possibility of reconstructing a house. That's the point we're trying to make. I want to build a house here. I want you to build a house out of your life that when the wind and the storm and the flame and the flood and whatever else comes against you, they beat upon you. You have so practiced the word of God. You have so practiced the sayings of Jesus that your house may shake and it may tremble. I'll tell you something, when that flood and that storm are all over, that house will be there intact. But brother, all around us are people whose houses are going to fall because they have never been founded upon the rock, that is, they've never made up their minds to really follow Jesus. See, a good many people, they want the salvation of Jesus. I know a good brother now that I love him dearly, but I know what he wants is the salvation of Jesus, and today his life is a shamble. He no longer walks in a way following the Lord. He's gone off on some trip of his own now. And in no time would he ever submit to and follow God's divine order in his life. He made up his own order, his own plan, his own scheme of things. And the result of it is his life came to a shambles, and now he's fallen by the wayside. And that only hasn't happened to one. The hundreds I've seen in a lifetime that have fallen by the wayside because they never found it upon the rock. You see, we can't just want the salvation of Jesus. Because we can be deceived. Jesus will give us that. And I don't mean that he'll give it to us to deceive us. He'll give it to us to bring us to some point. But immediately his spirit begins dealing with us and says, but there's something more that you expect to ultimately be saved. There's more to it than just saying, okay, I accept your Jesus. Or, Lord, forgive me of my sins, take me to heaven. oh, I feel so good, my sins are gone, I feel wonderful. That's not enough. The one thing the Bible emphasizes over and over is the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Oh, how this is hard for my American mind. I don't like to think I'm submitted to President Nixon or President Johnson. I don't care whether he's a Democrat or a Republican or whether I am one of those things. If my man gets in office, I'm just glad he's up there. But I don't want to submit to it. That's the American mind. I'm talking about my mind. I'm talking about the American mind. And when someone comes along and says, submit, I say, who? I don't submit to anybody until I came to Jesus. And then Jesus said, you're going to have to learn to submit. How, Lord? I'll submit when I think it's right. No. You'll submit. 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 Finally, the day had to come when I recognized that Jesus was telling me that he just didn't intend to be my Savior, unless he was also my Lord. And I tell you something, he couldn't make himself my Lord. He is my Lord. He's Lord of all the universe. He's King of kings and Lord of lords, but there's only one way he'll ever become Lord of my life, and that's when I make that total, complete, absolute submission to Jesus Christ and say, Lord, take over my life. You tell me what to do, Lord, and that's what I'll do. Even unto death. What does that mean? That the Lord to want me to die? could be that. Do you understand that, everyone that's here tonight? It could be that. Paul said, I'm now ready to be offered. I fought a good fight i finished the course. I'm now ready to be offered. You know, he knew he was going to be killed. He had to walk up to a Roman shopping block and lay his head down upon that block. And all he had to do to really get out of it is get up and say, I renounce Christ. I, I renounce him. Oh, a lot of people would believe that would be okay. Because they say, well, I'll do it here, but then I'll go tell the Lord. Now, Lord, you know that I'm weak and you know that I'm my frame is dust. And Lord, I want you to forgive me now. Paul didn't think that way. I don't think Paul believed that. I think Paul believed the words of Christ when Jesus said, if you confess me before men, then I'll confess you before my heavenly father. And if you deny me before men, then I'll deny that I ever knew you before my heavenly father. That's pretty heavy. That's pretty heavy. And I'm not talking about weakening at some little moment while you're getting along here. I'm talking about you and I standing up like men and women and being counted. You have been purchased at the cost of Christ's blood. You have been bought with the blood of the apostles and the blood of the prophets. I tell you something, this book is a book of blood. This King James Version that we hold is a book of blood. Every version of the Bible that you ever read is a bloody book. When they took this book and began to translate it into the English, the early translators were put to death. One man strangled, betrayed by a friend, into the hands of his enemy. And they took him out of a free city, moved him over into a city that was under the power of a certain authority at that time, and strangled him to death. Why? Not because he murdered somebody. Not because he shot somebody. Because he took this book that was not in the language of the English-speaking people, and he translated it. So anybody, you and I, could read this book. And it cost them blood. And I'll tell you, blood and fire has always been the cost getting this book from one generation to there There's never been a generation gone by where somebody hasn't laid down their blood and shed their blood for the sake of this gospel. Now, what is God doing? He's restoring this church. And I'll tell you why he's restoring it. Because we're getting ready for a real battle. We're getting ready. We may have some time ahead of us where there's a great ingathering of souls and a tremendous revolution is going to take place. We're going to see great favor among the people. That may be so. And yet I'm telling you something, the church has had favor for a long time with the people, but they haven't made too much use of it. And now maybe the time has come for God to restore the church to power, but at the same time he restores the church to power, it'll be that persecution and tribulation may break out against that church. And we better have that divine order well established at that time if we expect to stand up and fight. All right, now let me read to you. Turn with me to the book of Ephesians, please. And I want to show you that God has placed something in the church, and these offices are being reestablished for a reason. But the church as a whole doesn't recognize them yet. Foolish, weak churches everywhere, and they can't recognize these offices that God is reestablishing. Ephesians the fourth chapter, seventh verse, But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now, what gifts did he give unto men? Well, they are spiritual gifts. But they're not denying spiritual gifts. You see, Christ never gave the church denying spiritual gifts. Christ did not give the church denying spiritual gifts. These are the gifts of the Holy Spirit, denying spiritual gifts. He gave the church something even more basic, something more powerful that without it the nine spiritual gifts aren't going to be of much value. Now we've had since 1906, as a matter of fact it's about the 1880s, when the gift of healing was once again poured out on the church, and people went all over the land healing the sick. Well, about 1906 the Holy Spirit was outpoured as we understand it today, and all of the additional eight gifts, they had the healing gifts, but all of the additional eight gifts were added to the church. And so the nine gifts have been functioning since 1906. And we don't have a strong church yet. Brother, sister, the gifts of the Spirit don't make a strong church. As a matter of fact, the gifts of the Spirit may make a completely lopsided, warped church. That's not what makes a strong church, although we need those gifts. Oh, we need those gifts operating. I don't mean to downplay them or degrade them, because they're powerful. They're the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But without something else... They never come to the fruition that they should. Now, let's read on. Wherefore he saith when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? There he went to get captivity captive. He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. Now the Bible tells us the gifts that he gave to the church and here they are and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers now what do gifts for now you see if i have the gift of healing and here's a brother that's sick i lay my hands on him and i pray for him and if our faith is tuned up right he's healed or he may be healed even though his face is out of whack completely. God for some sovereign purpose will work through me and our brother's healed anyhow. So the gift of healing is for healing a person. And the gift of healing also attracts people to a gathering. You say, oh, so and so is healed. I want to go hear that message. So it attracts people to the message. The gifts of the Spirit confirm the message. Jesus said the Lord was working with those early apostles and disciples of the early church confirming the word which signs following. So when people hear a prophecy the bible say they're convicted in their spirit and they fall down in their face and they say god is among you of a truth or when they say a miracle they say we never saw it on this passage and the bible says they give glory to god or when they see faith operate or whatever the other things are their faith is established but the church is never built up by the gifts of the spirit the church is never perfected the church is never made ready for the ministry. I've seen churches where the gifts of the Spirit were operating powerfully, and no one in that church was ever witnessing to anybody. And not only that, but there were no sinners in the church. And not only that, but nobody ever cared whether there were any sinners in the church because they had the gifts of the Spirit I operated. Brother, listen, is, isn't this marvelous? Answer, no. It's ridiculous. But... I don't mean to downgrade what the Spirit was doing. He was working. But something was missing. Now, what was missing? The church had not allowed the gifts of Christ to operate in that church. They got lopsided. Now, let's see what happens here. He gave some apostles. Now, what happened to the apostles? Where are the apostles today? Well, everyone knows that the last one was Paul. Or was it Peter? Who was the last apostle? Who can tell me? John. Okay. That answer, by the way, is wrong. I won't tell you that. Go ahead and keep giving me wrong answers. (laughs) All right, I'll keep telling you about it. All right. Now, he gave some prophets. Now, where are the prophets? John the Baptist was the last one, right? Huh? Who was the last one? Agave. That's right. The last one is not yet. Nor is the last apostle not yet. Now what God is restoring to his church are these offices. Because the church will never come to perfection under the tutelage or the guidance of a pastor. A pastor has no power to bring the church to perfection. The only power that a pastor has, he's a wise counselor for his people. They have a problem, they come to the pastor and they say, Pastor, I've got a problem. What's the matter? Well, things are going wrong in my home. You see, I had a fight last week with my husband and he's mad at me and I, I have this problem and my children aren't acting right. What do you suggest, pastor? Well, now, Mr. So-and-so, tell you what. The Word of God says this, 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 this. this. Oh, thank you, Pastor. Praise the Lord. Will you pray with me? I certainly will. Now, Sister, Lord, bless you and strengthen you and so forth and so on. I pray for your husband and your children. Oh, Pastor, you don't know how you've restored peace in my home and you really helped. Oh, praise the Lord. Thank the Lord that he sent you by, Pastor. And man, I just... uh, Right! That's his job. He's a guide, a counselor to his people, his flock. It may be 50 people, maybe 500 people doesn't make any difference. He's a counselor to his flock, but he has no power to perfect his people. He doesn't even have the power to keep on the right road by himself. He'll go off just as sure as can be. Off into some little old, he'll become a nitpicking grandmother if he's not careful. I have nothing against grandmothers, but I got something against nitpicking grandmothers. Hallelujah. I love grandmothers. I better love one because if our children never get married, I'm going to be married to one. Hallelujah. <laughs> She's not a nitpicking grandmother. <laughs> now, now yeah, pastors get this way. And they run around. come on, I know. I And the <laughs> run around he got a little little bitty baby here he's going to take care of his little bitty, bitty babies now to watch he will go off the deep end unless he has somebody to guide him and straighten him out he may assume and he may have this gift because some of these gifts overlap he may assume that he is a teacher because he went to Bible school someplace and somebody showed him how to get a blackboard or some chalk talk and he stands up here and he says, now, see, see, one, two, three, four, five. Now you got that lesson, folks? Praise the Lord. Go home. Now your pastor's a teacher also. Listen to me, friends. No pastor is a teacher because he's a pastor. A pastor is a pastor only if he's called by God to be a pastor. A pastor isn't somebody who's been to Bible school for four years. That may only be a Christian who's been to Bible school for four years. A pastor is one who has been called by God out of the world to be saved and out of salvation, to do a specific job that God is called him to do, and that job is to pastor. And there is imparted to him, if he submits to the call of God, there is imparted to him a wisdom to wisely guide the people of God and to help them solve their day-by-day problems. That's his whole ministry. God has raised up teachers. They are divinely appointed men divinely appointed by God, that they have a peculiar capacity. Now I say, some of these, are maybe a pastor who's a teacher, there may be a pastor who's something else, but I'm talking about the man who's a pastor only. And I've known men like that. Marvelous men. They couldn't preach a lick. Terrible preachers. I'm not saying this to downgrade anybody. I mean, they were terrible preachers. They had no gift of preaching. But oh, they could guide their people well. And their people who loved them, and the church grew, and the people came to hear, not because the man had tremendous oratorical talent, because he didn't have it. But he had the ability to guide the people of God and help them with their problems, and they'd come to that church faithfully because they received the kind of help that they need. But I'm going to tell you something if that little pastor is afraid for the time being of stepping away from his pulpit, sitting down someplace. Allowing the God-ordained teacher to come forward and pick up the Word of God and begin to expound Scripture. The people sit there and say, Marvelous. We never heard such teaching. The Word is open to me. I feel that I've got a whole new understanding of the Word. That pastor gets jealous. Say, so, hey, teacher, that's enough now. Two weeks is enough. You get out of here now. I've got to get the allegiance of my people back again. Let me tell you something. That church is never going to come to perfection. That pastor can't do it by himself. He needs the ministry of the teacher. Teaching that man who can step into that spiritual realm. I tell you, I don't understand how it works. I just know that it does work. I'm simply telling you that the ordinary man can look at this book and read it, and he can see one thing. And what he sees is true. And it's wonderful. And he gets enough to help him out and so forth, and reads along, and he gets a lot of help, and God talks to him. I'm telling you the teacher can take this same book and it's just like he walks into some totally spiritual realm like this. When he reads that book, he reads something way deeper. Then he comes out of that spiritual realm and he walks back to where people are and he begins to impart scripture. And they say, oh, I never saw that before. That's the God-ordained teacher. God is reestablishing those men in the church today. Oh, in many churches they are reject it, say, get out of here. You're not teaching things that our denomination accepted. Go away from us, brother. You're taking the allegiance of the people away from me. They've always looked to me as the teacher. Listen to me. What we've got to look to is Christ as the teacher, and he appoints whom he will to be his physical instruments on earth to do that teaching. And that's what's important. Now we come to the next thing, the evangelist. What is an evangelist? Is that a pastor who preaches an evangelistic sermon? You've heard me sometimes preach an evangelistic sermon. And people, because I have some success with this, and sometimes people come up and get saved, two, three, whatever, get saved, come to the Lord. People have told me, Brother, you should be out preaching in a tent of 10,000 people. Think how many people would come to the Lord if you would. Why, folks, you know what would happen if I went out and preached in a tent that would seat 10,000 people? I think I'd be preaching to 10,000 empty seats. No, I'm not making fun of myself. I'm not an evangelist. There's no way to make me an evangelist. Paul says to Timothy, he said, do the work of an evangelist. If there are sinners in a congregation and I feel laid upon my heart to preach a salvation message, I'll do it. But I'm not an evangelist. And if I'm not wise enough, if I haven't got enough insight into the word of God to bring in the evangelistic ministry and to let it function and flourish in this church, I'm telling you this church will never come to perfection. Never. Now what is a prophet? Oh, I know, that's a guy like Isaiah goes around and prophesies what's going to happen tomorrow. You stop and read the 66 chapters of Isaiah's prophecy and you'll realize they worked over a period of a good many years in his lifetime. But I want to ask you something. What did Isaiah do with the rest of his time? We think a prophet always prophesies the future. He does not. The purpose of a prophet is to see the vision and the purpose and the plan of God for the church at that moment. He sees clearly what God's doing. I don't know how he sees it. I don't know how he understands it, but he perceives it. And he said, God is getting ready to, and he sees it. Now it's his job to take that vision and to hold it up before the church. So that little pastor, here he is, huh? Oh, You'll be a good boy, huh? Now daddy Pastor's gonna leave you for two days and you come back and see that on country, right? Okay? And sister, you do the same now, right? Uh-huh. Okay. That's, 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 that. See? All right. He's got no vision. His vision, here's his vision. My little vision. Here's my little vision. Oh, isn't that beautiful little vision? I'd love to see every one of you out here. Amen. That's great. But every once in a while Jesus said, get that man to look up. And lift up his eyes. From the harvest. And that's the job of the prophet, to come to that pastor and say, Pastor, get your eyes lifted up. Look at that vision. Here's what God is getting ready to do. And the pastor looks and he says, I see it. I see it. And suddenly he looks at his people and he says, Folks, I've got something I've got to tell you. Do you know what God is getting ready to do? And then he gives the vision to his people. And they suddenly come alert and they say, let's go. And the whole church starts to move off in that direction. Amen. Now without that vision, the Bible says what happens to the church? The people perish. Oh, they're sitting there. Oh, we love our pastor. And our pastor loves us. And we're all going to heaven together. And isn't it wonderful? Jesus, hold the port. That's right. And they're waiting for the Lord to come quick. Because little by little, the church is fading away. And you go to many of these churches today that are rejecting the truth that I'm preaching here. And you look at them. They're empty. Their Bible studies are empty, their prayer meetings are empty, their Sunday mornings are empty, and their Sunday nights are empty. And they're saying, oh Lord, come quickly, because the whole church is backsliding and falling away. Brother, I want you to know the whole church isn't backsliding and falling away. The church is being revived to those who will listen to what God is doing in this day and time. No, no, a time of great things is about to take place for the church, for those of the church who will listen. An apostle is a founder. He's an establisher, but also in all of these gifts, but especially in the apostolic ministry, I believe, or at least so it seems, although I've got something more to say about the prophet, because there's a revival of something special for the prophet to do, but there's something special for the apostle to do. He establishes works. He lays down some foundation. He sees something that needs to be done and he establishes that work and then he's up and he's gone someplace else. Now, I'm going to tell you something. An apostle also, by the way, is a pain in the neck. Paul was a pain in the neck. Oh, you think that's sacrilegious, do you? Paul was a pain in the neck. <laughs> no sooner were the church to really get going good than Paul come along and say Listen, we got tongues really going here, Paul Don't you hear? Here, speak in tongues over there Here, brother, give him another guy Give him another guy You know what people say about your church? What? They say you're all (laughs) about to not Paul wasn't a popular man He told them to knock it off He said you can talk in tongues by two or three Or I suppose in a praise service Where everybody's praising the Lord It was all right, a certain amount of it but he said, if you're going to be beside yourself, do it at home. Oh, what a pain in the neck. I'll tell you something about Paul. He kept that church steady. He set it on firm rails. He pushed it and got it moving. And for 2,000 years, we've been opening up this book. Seeing that track you laid down. Thank God for a pain in the neck. It's a whole lot better to have a pain in the neck and they have a broken neck. Paul kept the church from getting a broken neck. Now let me tell you something. Without the apostle, and the prophet, and the evangelist, and the pastor, and the teacher, all working together on the church, it'll never come to perfection, and it'll never be ready for its ministry. Today God is raising up these men imperfect as they may be, as foolish as men may be in the ministries that they perform and the silly things that they do, attempting to establish those ministries. But God is establishing those ministries again in the church, and those ministries are beginning to come forth. And those prophets and apostles and evangelists and pastors and teachers are beginning to take their God-given place and see that if a man is a pastor, thank the Lord for being a pastor, that's a marvelous God-given office, and he doesn't want to make himself an apostle. And if a man is an apostle, then he doesn't want to make himself a teacher. And if a man is a teacher, he doesn't want to be a prophet, and a prophet doesn't want to be an evangelist. But each of them realize their divine appointment by God and they're allowing God to establish him in that office, and they're beginning to walk as they understand the Word of God. Weakly at first, it wasn't like Paul, it wasn't like Peter, James, and John. When those men came forth, they came forth in power. And then when their age finished, there came others after them, but not quite in the power of Paul. And then others after them, not quite in the power of the one before. And the church declined for a long period of time until in the Dark Ages. There was virtually no office at all that was actively functioning in the church according to the scriptural pattern. And then out of that dark, dark age they began to shine a little glimmer of light again as one man stood up and he began to shout to the people, not a vision, but a message. We are saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone and not by works, which we have done. And thousands of people heard him and they gathered around him. And that man stood and he preached to those people, but they never came to perfection. Because they all gathered around the personality of a single man. And then another single man rose up, and another single man rose up, and another single man rose up. But these men primarily were pastors or teachers. They were not apostles, they were not prophets, and most of them were not evangelists. But in the last 20 years, God has been restoring to the church all of these offices, and they're beginning to manifest themselves in power. Now hear me, I know at times that some of you folks have made statements which I appreciate. I mean, it's a compliment to me, so I appreciate it. Yet in another way, I'm asking you to bear with me because you don't really understand the function of God, the way he's working. Many have said to me, Brother Durkin, we want to hear you preach all the time. And that isn't true of everyone. But those of you who have said that, I appreciate that. But I'm telling you something, that if I preached all the time and I taught all the time, this church would never come to perfection. I could not do it. I would warp you, twist you out of shape, bend you completely, and this church would never come to perfection. I realize that God has given me a certain slot in the ministry. And that slot in the ministry is where he has put me. Now, if I don't recognize the ministry of my brother, and my brother, and my brother, and my brother, so that all of the ministries begin to operate on this body, so that we have the ministry of the Apostle, so that we have the ministry of the prophet, so that we have the ministry of the evangelist, the pastor, teacher, no matter how imperfect those ministries may be. I have a young man, two of them, as a matter of fact, that have come to me just recently and said, I believe God is raising me up to teach. Now, you mark my word. I believe God is raising them up to teach. I believe that spirit is upon them. And I believe God has called them to be teachers. But I believe we're coming this way toward the power and the reestablishment of the church. You see, at first it was established in power and then it sunk down to this absolute dead level. Now we're coming this way again. And I believe we're coming out of weakness into strength. We're coming out of lack into fullness. I believe that every one of us, regardless of our gifts and our powers, we know we've been established by God in a certain office. But the apostle is a weak apostle. The prophet is a weak prophet. The pastors are weak pastors. The teachers are weak teachers. The evangelists are weak evangelists compared to that which God will reveal in us in the very near future. These ministries are being established in the church. These powers are being put back in the church. These glories are being released in the church. I'm telling you something we've got to be patient And we've got to submit to the mistakes and the weaknesses and the failures and the faults of men as they're learning to minister, learning to walk, learning to perform, learning to do. So gradually that day will come when in all of their glory and their beauty and their power, the church will manifest itself. The sons of God, full of power and glory. Now we're near to that. But in the meantime, each one of us, the Bible says, what is our ministry? The Bible says, let us wait on our ministries. Let us seek the Lord for these ministries until they're thoroughly and totally established within us. And I pray for you in the church, to every one of you, that you now get a vision in your mind and you see this church, not this church, well, this too, let's take locally because there is a place for the local church, that you see this local church with all five of the ministries ministering into this church doesn't mean they need to be here all the time, but they're constantly passing through and ministering to this church. And I want you to see this church brought to perfection, where all of the nine gifts of the Spirit are operating in this church, where prophecy operates in this church, where tongues and interpretation operate in this church fully and completely, where miracles of healing and faith operate in this church, where the word of wisdom and the word of knowledge and the discerning of spirits operate in this church in all of their fullness, but always under the total teaching of the order and discipline of the Holy Spirit. Now let me finish up with something. Does that mean in this church there will not be dancing in the Spirit? No, I think the truth of it is there will be more dancing in the Spirit, not less. Does it mean that we won't have any time of talking in tongues in church? No, I think probably if anything there will be more, but it will all be done decently and in order. The dancing of the Spirit will be done in the divine order. Oh, it may not look very decent to some people when they see it. I don't think I looked so decent when I was hopping around up here the other night. But I tell you something, deep down in their spirit, they go home and they say, Man, that was the most awful thing I ever saw in my life. It was crazy. People jumping around, hopping all over the church and saying, Praise the Lord. Crazy, man. I never want to go back to that place again. When's the next service? <laughs> and here they come. Hallelujah the divine order of things. But you see, some of us now, the actual fact is, a good many of us are of the super quiet nature, and we wouldn't want to be dancing in the Spirit. He says, oh, wow, see if I dance. But you see, you need the teaching of the Apostle and the Prophet maybe to stir you up a little bit so you'll let go and let yourself do what you have to do too. All right. Now, I'm going to bring this message to a close. I'm preaching about half an hour. But there is one thing that I do want you to do. I have in my own mind, over the years, the last couple of them anyhow, recognized certain people to have certain ministries. Now these people, I've given them opportunities to minister, and at times when they have ministered, I thought that they could have done better, and I'm sure that they could have done better. But every church that I've ever seen that's ever become anything at all, has always had a remarkable and wonderful capacity. And that is the capacity to set and let the younger ministers grow strong at the church's expense. Now, I don't mean that I shouldn't preach, because I shouldn't. I intend to preach a great deal more and to give you a lot of more personal teaching that I've been doing in the past. So uh, this is not what I'm saying to get out of it. But I'm saying if I attempted to give you all the teaching and didn't let these young ministries come up alongside that are being established by God, and i'm telling you we would be shortchanging our heritage of tomorrow because whatever ministry you might see me have today and you might rejoice in that ministry and say man i love to hear brother durkin preach i'm going to tell you there was a time when you could have asked anybody in the church that i preached to and they'd say i'd rather hear anybody else but brother durkin preach that's the truth and i'm not kidding i knew i was called to preach and i had that divine anointing to preach Yet the truth is, somehow when I got up to preach, it all came out wrong. I stumbled over myself. I forgot the message. I went completely blank. I didn't know what to say to the people. And I stand up there. I remember the first sermon I ever preached. And man, I thought the Lord had really given it to me. And I got up there before the congregation, and my sermon was, what was it? Now let me see if I get the exact wording. Where he said to the Pharisees, "The generation of vipers, who have warned you to flee from the wrath to come." That was my sermon. And I was preaching that in an assembly of God camp meeting. The whole place was filled with Christians. There wasn't a sinner in there any place. And here they were all sitting, looking for this brand new preacher that Brother Roe, my first pastor, said, man, he's been called to the Lord, and the anointing of God is on him, and uh, several of you heard him teach in Sunday school, and the Lord blessed me in Sunday school. Man, they were really saying, praise the Lord, this is wonderful, you know. And so they had me preach during the camp meeting, and that was my sermon. Generation of vipers who have warned you to flee from the wrath to come, and I call them liars and hypocrites and thieves, and they're sitting out there looking at me, you know. (laughs) That was my sermon, see? Well, now, if somebody hadn't graciously, and some have even come up afterward, and they shook my hand, and they said, Brother Durkin, that was a fine <laughs> Oh, man. I should have went and hid my head in the sand someplace, but I didn't know. You know, I thought, wow, a real good message. Oh, that's, hey. Hey. See? Terrible, terrible. Now, folks, God is raising up great ministries among us. And we're going to hear from these people, and we're going to see from them from time to time as they go out to establish the work of God and do the work of God in a great way. And while they're establishing their own ministries... They will be blessing us and helping us. And so let these ministries be established. Now let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you because you are establishing to the church that which it was in the beginning. And Lord, it was a thing of beauty and power and glory, and your holiness was the very aim of that church, Lord. Father, we see that vision of you reestablishing that ministry in this day and time. And, Lord, you're raising up not a weak people, but a strong people. Lord, not a fearful people, but a mighty people, an overcoming people, Lord, that are going to go out and do the job that you've called them to do. Now, Lord, we commit them into your hands. And we commit this ministry into your hands. And we commit this people into your hands, Lord, as you send them forth to do the job that you've called them to do. Now, Lord, dismiss us with your blessing, we pray. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.